Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 10, Judges chapters 5 and 6. We're going to finish up Judges chapter 5, the song of Deborah, today, and we're going to begin chapter 6. And I'm going to warn you ahead of time that we're going to spend about as long in chapter 6 as we have with the Song of Deborah in chapter 5. And last week we looked at verses 12 through 22 of chapter 5 that centered on what I call the roll call of the tribes. And sadly we saw that six and a half of the twelve tribes refused to answer the Lord's call to arms, to liberate the northern tribes of Israel from the Canaanite oppression and to restart that march towards a proper establishment of a kingdom of God in the promised land. Now the Transjordanian tribes of Manasseh and in this case called Mahir in this episode of the Song of Deborah Reuben and Gad and here called Gilead by the way in this, these verses, along with Asher, Dan, Judah, and Simeon, for various reasons, didn't want to get involved with this renewed holy war. And their reasons ranged from simple passivity to a lack of commitment to historical promises to outright selfishness and a larger desire to maintain profitable relationships with pagans than to help protect their own brethren and to be obedient to God. Now we ended up with a summation of the war that was in verses 19 through 22 that has a supernaturally ordered thunderstorm caused by a flash flood uh, rather, a thunderstorm that caused a flash flood all right, um, of the normally semi-dry Kishon River, thus swinging the battle led by Barak in favor of the Israelites as that river's banks overflowed and inundated the battlefield, thus immobilizing the main armament of the Canaanite forces, which was iron chariots in a sea of mud. Let's read a little bit more of this song today. Open your Bibles to Judges chapter 5. If you have the complete Jewish Bible, it's page 273. And we're going to read verses 23 through 27. Judges chapter 5, we're going to read 23 through 27. Curse Merose, said the angel of Adonai, cursed the people living there with a bitter punishment for not coming to help Adonai, to help Adonai against the mighty warriors. Yael will be blessed more than all women. The wife of Hever the Kani will be blessed more than any woman in the tent. He asked for water, she gave him milk. In an elegant bowl, she gave him curds. Then she took a tent peg in her left hand, a workman's hammer in her right, and with the hammer she struck Sisera, pierced his skull. Yes, she shattered and crushed his temple. He sank down at her feet. He fell and lay there. He sank at her feet. He fell. Where he sank down, there he fell dead. This 
This 23rd verse again faces us with a couple of interesting challenges. Who or what is Meroz? And who or what is being referred to as the angel of the Lord? See, it's interesting that at about this point in the book of Judges that we're going to see the angel of the Lord front and center quite a bit. Now, there is no other mention of Meroz in all of Scripture. But the general consensus is that it's an Israelite town or village that failed to do its duty. The, the level of anger expressed against this town indicates that they must have had every reason to join the fight, but they wouldn't do it. Perhaps they had political alliances with some Canaanite kings, or they were too self-absorbed to care much about their brethren or God's command to serve him in that capacity. But what's more challenging is that this curse of Meroz is said to have been uttered by the angel of the Lord. Now, we've discussed this concept of the angel of the Lord before, so we're not going to delve into it terribly deeply today. We're going to look at it a little more in the next couple of weeks, but I'm going to summarize it. The Hebrew that's translated as angel of the Lord is Malach Yehoveh. Malach Yehoveh. Malach does not literally mean angel. It's a generic word. It means messenger. Yehoveh is, of course, God's formal name. Now, a Malach can be anyone who brings a message. In fact, it doesn't even have to involve a divine message. Okay. Often in the Bible, a malach is merely a human being going about a strictly human task. However, when the term is used in a supernatural context, or when it's attached to the formal name of God, it usually has the sense of this being a specially heavenly being, or even a manifestation of God himself. It's more the norm that we'll find this Malach Yehoveh speaking in the first person. I, me. Identifying himself as God, or at least carrying God's authority. A typical Malach, whether human or angelic, refutes all human attempts to worship him. But, Malach Yehoveh accepts worship. The rabbis and Christian commentators disagree about the messenger of the Lord in many cases. For whatever reason, the rabbis tend to view almost every instance of this Malach Yehoveh as just a human messenger. Thus we might commonly call that messenger a prophet. Because bringing a message from God is exactly what a prophet does. So some rabbis say that this use in verse 23 of the angel of the Lord is referring to Deborah who's already been established as being a prophetess. Others say it's referring to Barak, which frankly defies logic to my way of thinking. In other words, 
They're saying that the statement that forms verse 23 is either Deborah or Barak, who's being quoted. I don't see it that way at all. You know, rabbis tend to put some Bible characters high up on a pedestal. The way the Catholic Church anoints some as their own saints. They are put on a higher spiritual plane, above normal human beings, and even has them at times having direct conversation with God. For some reason, there is this tendency within Judaism to take what is, in plain language, a very mysterious account that seems plainly to be of a spiritual nature and then to humanize it. Christians are equally as guilty of taking some very literal Bible passages and spiritualizing them so that they mean something else entirely. Now, since God is the divine and supreme warrior leader of Israel is woven so vis- uh, visibly into the song of Deborah, it's hard not to take this mention of Malach Yehoveh as God speaking. First of all, it's a standalone statement. It comes immediately after the summation of the battle at the Kishon River and immediately before this praise that is going to be heaped upon Yael who killed that Canaanite army general, Sisera. Second, we have a curse that's being issued. And even though six and a half of the other tribes failed to show up for battle, only the town of Moroz is given such a harsh rebuke as to receive a curse. Okay? Unless the curse is only rhetorical comment. If this is Deborah speaking, we have her issuing the curse apparently by her own authority. When other prophets issue a curse, typically it's that they preface it with the words, The Lord says thus making it a pronouncement of God and not their own righteous anger. Third, nowhere else in Judges can we make a case for a shofet, a judge, being given the lofty label of a messenger of Yehovah, angel of the Lord. That just doesn't fit. And fourth, I think this statement fits very well with the metaphor used in verse 20 of the stars in the heaven fighting against Sisera. Deborah has spent much of her song giving all glory and credit and honor to God for fighting against the Canaanites on Israel's behalf. The most plausible explanation is that this is a divine manifestation of God that we find speaking in a number of places in the Old Testament. A manifestation called the angel of the Lord who invariably speaks in the first person, I. Well, in verse 24, praise upon praise is heaped upon the brave wife of Hever the Kenite, saying that Yael will be blessed more than all other women is not a continuation of the previous verse, nor is it being uttered by the Malach, Yehovah. Rather, it's effusive adoration by Deborah upon this female assassin 
who came to Israel's aid even though her own husband was allied with Yavin, king of Hazor. That is, this statement is not a statement of divine fact. That we're to take word for word. Yael is not being elevated by the Lord above all other women. It's just a rather Middle Eastern way of speaking. Kind of like, you know, several years ago, we heard Saddam Hussein warn that if the USA attacked Israel, it would set off what? The mother of all wars. Okay, it's just a culturally based exaggeration. Now further, it's key for us to recognize that Yael was a Gentile, not, a, not an Israelite. And as quickly as we can forget that the entire Bible, Old Testament and New, is Hebrew literature based entirely within an Israelite culture. So we can find many accounts of Gentiles operating on Israel's behalf and having praise and blessing heaped upon them. Yael went against the tide. She went against her own husband, her own clan. She put herself and her family in great jeopardy to help a people to which she had no familial or genealogical attachment. You know, there's only one reason for her to do that. She knew that Yehovah was preeminent. And that to not help his people when the opportunity literally showed up at her doorstep was more dangerous than standing by idly or assisting his people's enemies. You know, while I don't recommend murder, all right, I do recommend adopting Yael's recognition that with God there is no such thing as neutrality. You are either for him and his people or you're against. Not acting on their behalf makes one guilty by association of siding with their enemies. The next few verses recount the story of Yael killing Sisera as told in Judges back in Judges chapter 4. And in a nutshell, Sisera was running away from his defeat at the Kishon, heading back to his headquarters up near Hatzor. And it wasn't by accident that he arrived at the tent encampment of the Kenites as he fled. He would have known exactly where they were. He didn't just accidentally stumble across them in his flight. He intentionally went there for temporary refuge because Heber, the clan chief, had created some kind of friendly alliance or friendship with the Canaanites. Now, Yael knew who Sisera was, and she treated him with utmost respect. She offered him some type of a milk product that was highly prized, and she presented it to him in a royal-sized bowl. And once he felt safe, he had his appetite satisfied, and he relaxed in Yael's tent. She grabbed a hardened wood tent peg and a large workman's hammer and in a couple of swift blows drove it through Sisera's head all the way into the earthen floor of the tent. 
Now I mentioned in a couple of earlier lessons concerning this assassination, we need to be a little cautious on how we view it. Christians especially tend to point out the deception, seduction, lying, and then cold-blooded murder that occurred here. And that we perhaps ought to view this as barbaric and wrong. But we have to temper that with understanding that this was a time of war. There is nothing scripturally that prohibits deception, ambush, spying, or killing the enemy leadership at times of war. Okay. This, was a, that this was a very gruesome way to go <laughs> is merely indicative of the way war was fought and people were killed back in the Bible days. You know, today we have cleaner and neater ways such as bullets fired at long range or bombs dropped from high altitudes where the only eyewitnesses are the dead. We've kind of sanitized the whole process of war. And when the American or European viewing public gets an occasional glimpse of the actual horror of it all on our TVs, we pull back in revulsion and want to indict the military for doing its job. While we don't see God per se giving his direct approval to Yael's actions, neither is there any indication that what she did was seen as negative in God's eyes. Let's move on to uh, the next and final few verses of this chapter. uh, Judges 5.28 to the end. Sisera's mother looks out the window. Peering out through the lattice, she wonders, why is this chariot so long in coming? Why are his horses so slow to return? The wisest of her ladies answers her, and she repeats it to herself. Of course, they're collecting and dividing the spoil. A girl, two girls, for every warrior. For Sisera, booty of dyed clothing, a plunder of colorfully embroidered garments, two embroidered scarves for every soldier's neck. May all your enemies perish like this, Adonai, but may those who love him be like the sun going uh, going forth in its glory. Then the land had rest for 40 years. If there's any section of this song that is perhaps a bit questionable in its character, For me, it's here. Because we have Deborah mocking the pain and anguish of Sisera's mother, who is anxiously waiting for him to return from the battle. In a kind of dark poetry, Deborah sings of Sisera's mother looking expectantly out of her window, waiting for her victorious son to arrive home leading his men in a victory parade. Why, she wonders, is his chariot taking so long to come back? Where are all the horses and their riders? I imagine she, like her son Sisera, reckoned that the battle-hardened Canaanite troops with their fearsome chariots were going to make short work 
out of the lightly armed Israelite militia. Now, because she's the mother of the military general, she was part of the elite. She had servants. She had ladies in waiting to surround her. And when they see that she's terribly concerned, her ladies attempted to cheer her up by saying that the only possible answer is that Caesar's men captured so much booty that it's taking an especially long time to divide it up. Now, where it says in our complete Jewish Bibles, a girl, two girls for every warrior, that is a very cleaned up version. Alright, of the more graphic and rather frank reality that it says literally. For in Hebrew, the words are a womb, two wombs for every warrior. For in that era, women were considered just part of the war booty. The victorious soldiers used them as objects of sexual gratification, and it was very typical to bring some of those enemy girls home to be used as long-term sex slaves until they tired of them. The law of Moses prohibited the Israelite soldiers from behaving in that kind of a degrading manner. This song ends with two petitions addressed to Jehovah. The first is that God would have all of his and consequently Israel's enemies be destroyed as thoroughly as what happened at the Kishon River. And second, that for those who love God, that they, he would see them as glorious like the rays as the sun as it sets. And Deborah prays for vindication and victory on behalf of Jehovah's followers, those who will set aside convenience and comfort and safety when they're called by the Lord to be his holy warriors. The final words are typical in the book of Judges. Each time the story of a certain Shaphat is finished, we always see the words, and the land had rest. In this case, after the tremendous victory of Barak over Sisra at the base of Mount Tabor, the tribes of Israel had peace for one full generation. 40 years. But let's be clear that the reason for the generation of peace wasn't so much the present lack of enemies as it was the backtracking of Israel from their idolatry and sin and this new determination among the Israelite tribes to be obedient now to the will of God. Let's also be clear that the reference to the 40 years of rest in the land was in this case referring to the northern tribal areas because it was in the northern part of Canaan and the tribes who lived there that this whole context of the story of Deborah and Barak occurred. Let's move on to Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6, page 277 in your complete Jewish Bible. But the people of Israel did what was evil from Adonai's perspective, so Adonai handed them over to Midian for seven years. Midian exercised its power harshly against Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel hid themselves in mountains and in caves and in other safe places. One time, after Israel's sowing season, Midian with Amalek 
and others from the east attacked them. They set up camp by them, destroyed the produce of the country all the way to Gaza. They left nothing for the people to live on. No sheep, no oxen, no donkeys. For they came up with their cattle and tents and they came in as thick as locusts. Both they and their camels were beyond numbering and they came into the land to destroy it. Israel became very discouraged because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out to Adonai. And when the people of Israel cried out to Adonai because of Midian, Adonai sent a prophet to the people of Israel who said to them, Adonai, the God of Israel, says, I brought you up from Egypt out of a life of slavery. I delivered you from the power of the Egyptians and from the power of all your oppressors. I drove them out ahead of you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am Adonai, your God. You're not to be afraid of the gods of the Amori in whose land you are living. But you paid no attention to what I said. Then the angel of Adonai came and sat under the pistachio tree in Ophrah that belonged to Yoash the Aviesri. His son Gideon was, uh, was threshing wheat in the wine press in order to hide it from Midian. The angel of Adonai appeared to him and said to him, You valiant hero, Adonai is with you. Uh, excuse me, sir, answered Gideon, but if Adonai is with us, then why is all this happening to us? And where are all the miracles that our ancestors told us about when they said, didn't Adonai bring us up from Egypt? For now Adonai has abandoned us. He's handed us over to Midian. Adonai turned to him and said, go in this strength of yours and save Israel from the hands of Midian. Haven't I sent you? But Gideon answered him, Forgive me, my lord, but with what am I to save Israel? Why, my family is the poorest in Manasseh. I'm the youngest person in my father's house. Adonai said to him, Because I will be with you. You will strike down Midian as easily as if they were just one man. And Gideon replied, If indeed you favor me, would you mind giving me a sign that's really you talking with me? Please don't leave until I go and return with a gift and present it to you. And he replied, I'll wait till you come back. And Gideon went in, cooked a young goat, and made matzah from a bushel of flour. He put the meat in the basket and the broth in a pot. And he brought them out to him under the pistachio tree and presented them. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and matzah, lay them on this rock, and pour out the broth. Gideon did so. Then the angel of Adonai reached out with the stick he was holding. And he touched the meat and the matzah. And fire shot up out of the rock, burned up the meat and matzah. Then the angel of Adonai disappeared before his eyes. Gideon realized that this was the angel of Adonai and said, Oh no, my Lord, Adonai, because I've seen the angel of Adonai face to face. But Adonai reassured him, Shalom to you, don't be afraid, you won't die. Then Gideon built an altar there to Adonai and called it Adonai Shalom. And to this day it remains in Ophrah of the Avi Ezri. We'll stop there. 
Now, scholars tend to see the judgeship of Gideon as the beginning of kind of, if you would, the second half of a period of the judges. Now, although it was only three short chapters ago that we had recounted for us the story of Othniel, the first judge of uh, Israel, about two centuries have passed uh, since that time. Conditions in Israel changed greatly over those two centuries. Various Canaanite kings have come and gone. Israelite territories have expanded and contracted. The priesthood of Israel was moving steadily towards irrelevance. Simeon's absorption into Judah was underway. Dan was on the move. North, in the process of abandoning their God-given territory on the Mediterranean for an easier life up near Lebanon and Syria. The two and a half Israelite tribes that had chosen a life on the east side of the Jordan were slowly but surely disassociating themselves from the rest of their Hebrew brethren. Now Gideon represents the fifth cycle of rebellion, apostasy, oppression by a foreign nation as a divine punishment, then Israel crying out for salvation and God responding by sending them a deliverer, a Mashiach, a Messiah, who would then lead them to victory. And after defeating their oppressors, Israel would, for a short time, step back from their idolatry, worship Jehovah with sincerity and fidelity, and obey Torah. Yet in no time, backsliding would begin. The cycle would start all over again. And the damage, you see, had been done. Israel had allowed the Canaanites to remain. And they, they thrived all over the promised land. Without their even realizing it, Israel had embraced many of the philosophies and, and standard cultural practices of the Canaanites. Therefore, it was tempting and easy for the Israelites to compromise and reintroduce those pagan ways right back into their worship and their lifestyles. You know, there's a saying in the South that I've always enjoyed, and I think it's some of the better folk wisdom that we ought to remember at all times. When you're up to your rear end in alligators, sometimes it's easy to forget that the original idea was to drain the swamp. That was Israel's condition. God instructed Joshua to completely drain the swamp of Canaanites, and they set about doing it. The problem is that as they engaged the enemy as time passed, they found several good reasons to allow many of those alligators to remain, rather than staying true to the goal of total eradication. The unintended consequence was that the remaining alligators gained confidence, thrived, and they became a bigger pest than before the holy war process had begun under Joshua. Over the next three chapters, we're going to see the history of Gideon, and then later his family, fully discussed. Because the amazing act of God, uh, amazing acting out, rather, of God's grace 
and his holy righteousness and his justice was so obviously on display all during that time. But also because it contains a rich treasure of instruction and warning for the church, for us, and for the modern reborn state of Israel. You know, it seems, though no matter how many cycles of foolhardy efforts that Israel makes to attempt peace with the world, or for the church to compromise God's truth so that we might fill vacant pews and starving church bank accounts with the succor of seekers and those who want only a mirage of godliness to soothe the emptiness of their souls will try again and again and again charging that the earlier generations who failed did so because they just didn't try hard enough thus every one of the four cycles of apostasy that related to us before the start of Gideon, ends with the words, then the land had rest, usually for 40 years. But the next cycle also begins with the words, but the people of Israel did what was evil in God's eyes. The cycle of Gideon was, of course, the same. The cycle of the people of God in modern times is running on parallel tracks with that. But do we have the eyes to see and the ears to listen? Verse 1 begins with those ominous words that Israel had enjoyed faithfulness to the Lord and so the fruits of the divine blessings that resulted. But soon they gave it all away so they could do what was right in their own eyes. Yes, it definitely does not say literally that Israel did what was right in their own eyes. Rather, it says they did what was evil in God's eyes. I say to you with full confidence that doing what's right in our own eyes is evil in God's eyes. Evil's more deceptive than overt. Evil almost always looks beautiful before it turns ugly. Evil seems right in our humanness before it all goes wrong. Are we to think in these cycles of the judges that the people of God just awoke one morning and said, you know what, let's all go offend God. That the leaders of Israel got together and made a pact to be wicked? I guarantee you that they would have protested greatly when accused of sin and idolatry. And they would have denied it. They would have been aroused to anger at that indictment. And I can make that guarantee because we read of it. Not only here, but in the prophets as well. The prophets that God chose to warn His people, they weren't anxious to deliver that message because they knew full well it would be rejected and that they would suffer for their efforts. The leaders and the citizens at large were incredulous 
that someone would point a finger at them and say that they were behaving as heathens before the Lord. Nevertheless, that is what Israel and the era of the judges did, and that is what is happening today. And because God never changes, and because His pattern never changes, the consequences never change. God turned Israel over to their enemies to be oppressed. In this case, it was Midian. Yep, the same Midian where Moses fled from Egypt, found a wife, lived as a simple shepherd for 40 years, and then was summoned to the burning bush on a hilltop, and where he collapsed at the mere sound of Jehovah's voice and the unbearable weight of God's presence there. Midian was the name of a semi-nomadic tribe that shared a blood kinship with Israel because Midian was descended from Keturah, Abraham's concubine. Territories were named after the dominating tribe that lived there. By now, Midian had grown in size. And... um, Various clans that formed the tribe claimed territories ranging from the northwestern part of the Arabian Peninsula all the way um, on the other side of the Gulf of Aqaba and down into the Sinai Peninsula below the area of what would be called Edom, which is right about here. Now recall that in the story of Deborah, that the Gentile woman, Yael, who pinned Sisera's skull to the tent floor, was part of the tribe of Midian. She was of the Kenite clan, which was a small breakaway clan of the Midianite tribe that moved into the northern part of Canaan and formed a friendship with the king of Hatzor. Now, Israel would suffer at the hand of Midian and some other foreigners for seven years before God acted. The oppression was apparently unusually severe. So severe that many of the Hebrews took to living in caves and hiding up in the mountains of the Canaanites. Part of the problem was that, as it says in verse 3, the Midianites had teamed up with the dreaded Amalekites. And in addition, some number of smaller unnamed hordes that are more literally called the children of the the east had joined in with them. And together they would descend like locusts upon several of the Israelite tribes come harvest time. Now apparently they weren't interested in conquest. They just wanted to steal Israel's food supply. This is totally characteristic of nomads in both ancient and modern times. By definition, nomads had no interest in holding land. They just wanted the fruit of the land. Nomads had no interest in empire. They only wanted to take what others toiled to produce. Much of the reason that the Middle East and Eastern Asia continue today as backward so-called third world nations, is that even now, they live the lifestyle of nomads. Even though they are somewhat more settled. Islamic law 
is a law of nomads, a law of predators. As Jews began to return to their ancient homelands in the 1800s, they returned to a land populated primarily by Arab nomads. The land was deserts and swamps because nomads have no understanding of farming or husbandry or producing goods and services or building. The land was used up and then left for dead. Shepherds moved their flocks and herds from pasture to pasture on land they did not own. They stayed there until the land was used up Nothing was left, and then they would wander to another pasture that could be used. Marauding nomads, plundered passing caravans, whether they were family or foreigners. Verse 4 begins the story of a particular time, apparently in the eighth year since the seasonal invasions had started, that finally led Israel to cry out to God for help. The nomads attacked starting in the north-central part of Canaan, and then began to work their way southward towards Gaza. They came in countless numbers, we're told, and boldly set up tent camps as they determined to extract every last morsel of food that Israel had produced over the last agricultural season, and they did just that. When they left, it says there was no fruit, no grain, no animals, whether they be food animals or beasts of burden. It should be noted that it says these invaders came on what? Camels. Camels became the weapons platform for the descendants of Ishmael, who mostly dwelled upon the desert sands. While the Canaanites and those nations coming from the direction of Mesopotamia, they preferred horses. While not as formidable as chariots, Camels were a fearsome weapon. Camels gave these Midianites the military advantage of a speedy, long-range fighting force of large animals that certainly must have struck fear into the hearts of Israel. That it took Israel seven straight years of these human locusts uh, descending upon them before they sought the Lord for his help ought to be kind of familiar to us. Not just because that was the general pattern as seen in the era of the judges, but because to this very day, God's people, whether Jews or Gentile Christians, seem to seek God only after matters have become extreme and as a last resort. Israel was brought very low. They existed in the most primitive ways, cowering in fear, eating disgusting things to survive, living in crevices in the rocks for shelter. You know how often I've pled to fill up our prayer list with petitions to God. This is because for some reason reason, our evil inclinations continue to reign over us such that we see turning to God as something to do only when all of our human efforts have been exhausted. This must be one of the lessons that God was teaching Israel. That to obey Him at all times is the best course. But when we wander off, 
or bad things happen to us, our first and best reaction ought to be to repent, confess, seek mercy, and lay it at his feet. Israel was in a bad way. Whatever the Midianites and the Melchites couldn't carry away with them, it says they destroyed. Starvation was a distinct possibility for God's people. When Israel finally called out to God, he answered through an unnamed prophet. Because of the way the Bible's translated, we kind of miss the impact of God's response of love and mercy through his prophet. For as it says in the original Hebrew, Yehovah, the Elohim of Israel, says, I brought you up from the land of Egypt. Sadly, this generation of Israel really didn't know God very well. And God was acutely aware of that fact. God reminded them that He, Yehovah, was their God. Not Baal. It was He, Yehovah, who brought them out of Egypt. Not some other God. It was Yehovah who redeemed them from slavery, drove out the Canaanites from before Joshua, gave Israel the very land that's now under invasion. Now, once again, Israel's God would deliver them from a predicament mostly of their own making. The people well understood that when a prophet was sent from God, that it was invariably going to be a message of warning or rebuke. And this one was no different. The Lord wanted his people to think long and hard about why they were oppressed. That in fact, the Lord had promised this oppression. And that it was he who caused it. Because he wanted them to understand that this oppression of eastern nomads wasn't some kind of a test. It was a judgment. It was a judgment against them for their idolatry and rebellion. It was repentance that the Lord wanted, accompanied with real change. Father God also threw in a bit of a zinger when he reminds them in verse 10 that he had always told his people in the past, don't be afraid of the gods of the Amori and the land they were now living. Let's end with this, with examining that statement for a moment. The Lord is saying that at the core of Israel's problem is fear. They were fearful of the gods of their enemies, so they capitulated to them. Israel, as with all other known people of the ancient world, accepted as self-evident that it was the gods of any particular nation that provided that nation with whatever power it had. So it was the gods that they feared primarily and only the army of that people secondarily. Appease the gods and chances were that you'd be spared. That is what fear usually does. It causes us to compromise and appease. And what that compromise amounted to then was that Israel openly worshipped the other gods in hopes that their enemies wouldn't be so harsh on them. Or that perhaps their enemies' gods, maybe they did have some power. 
Maybe they ought to be acknowledged. Yet in no way did Israel think they were abandoning Yehovah in favor of other gods. Rather, they were just giving in to their fears and kind of hedging their bets. You know, it's been a long time since fear has gripped the whole earth as it has today at the rise of Islam. Secular nations, especially like Europe, have no hope other than their government bodies. Since they've long ago abandoned the Lord, they've taken up the way of compromise and appeasement to deal with their potential enemies. Leaders are scrambling to find nice things to say about Islam. Prime ministers and presidents work hard to rationalize that Islam is actually a good religion of peace and love despite what your eyes are seeing. They do it because they're so fearful of the violence. That all that's really necessary is for all of us to show tolerance to the Muslims. Respect for Allah. Give them a little bit of what they claim to want and then we'll all be better for it. Many in the church, from the Archbishop of Canterbury to hundreds of denominational leaders, have decided in our day that declaring Islam and their God as on par with the God of Israel and the Bible, that's the correct course of action. Some of the Jewish leadership of Israel has determined basically the same thing. This is because despite their denials, they're acting out of fear. Fear is so much more than an emotion, a fight or flight. It's a vehicle of Satan designed to pull us away from God. And in verse 10, the Lord is telling Israel that trust in Him for those who love Him, that's the antidote for fear. But they wouldn't believe Him. And this is the result.